You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, I'm Teresa McKee, your host for A Mindful Moment. Thank you for joining me as we explore ways to increase mindfulness in our day-to-day experiences. Mindfulness is presence, awareness. It's paying attention to what's happening within us and around us. Mindfulness increases our emotional, physical, and mental well-being. It can also enhance our focus and productivity. And there are many health benefits from practicing mindfulness and meditation, from lowering blood pressure to increased longevity. Perhaps most importantly, in today's chaotic world, mindfulness strengthens our ability to be more compassionate to ourselves as well as others. As we've all experienced recently, life is full of unexpected challenges, and most of us at some point in time will experience a genuine crisis, be it related to health, finances, relationships, or even that dreaded dark night of the soul. A mindfulness practice can certainly help us in these situations on multiple levels. First, by being self-aware, we can at least recognize what we're doing and make adjustments along the way. Second, mindfulness can help us see the bigger picture, allowing us to put a little space between ourselves and the crisis. And third, many mindfulness practices can help us calm our systems down, allowing for more clarity even in the midst of a crisis, providing us with the opportunity to make better decisions as we navigate through the experience. Crises come in all sizes, big and small. When it's a major crisis, such as Miguel Sancho and his family experienced, it can be a tough ride, even with mindfulness. Miguel's new book, More Than You Can Handle, chronicles his journey through his son's rare and deadly immune deficiency, CGD, and the five-year battle to keep him alive. Traversing cutting-edge science, religious faith, alternative medicine, and marital challenges, The Sanchos struggled through what appeared to be insurmountable problems, but in the end, their son's treatment was successful. Miguel is an Emmy-winning journalist and television producer, with more than two decades of producing national television news broadcasts, most recently as senior producer of 2020 on ABC. He is currently executive producer of non-scripted television documentaries and series at A&E, and his most recent project, The Proof is Out There, premiered on the History Channel in January 2020. After years of investigative reporting, he turned the spotlight from others to himself, 
telling the compelling story of his family's journey. Thank you for joining us today to share your story. It's wonderful to be here. And thank you. And thank you to your audience for giving us some of your time. Well, the book is a fascinating read of your journey through what has to be every parent's worst nightmare. Um, I was very relieved to hear that your son had a positive outcome after all of that. But what your family went through is pretty horrific. Can you share why you decided to write the book? Certainly. Uh, a couple of reasons. First is just as a journalist, uh, you know, it's kind of my job to identify a good story. And 99.99 times out of a thousand, it's something happening to other people. Even 9-11, which is a story that affected me personally, you know, because I lived in lower Manhattan at the time, wasn't really about me, obviously. In this case, however, I also happened to be kind of living it as opposed to just witnessing it. So that was part of the motivation in that it looked like it was, you know, a journalistically worthwhile effort. The other part of it, though, was personal in that I had spent, whatever, 25 years of my life kind of training my critical facilities on other people's shortcomings and other people's imperfections and other people's errors in judgment or moral lapses. And I was interested to see if I had the capacity and the honesty to kind of focus some of those same skills on myself. You talk in depth about the tricks of the mind and negative thinking and mm. really the impact negative or chronic stress has on our minds. I know you suggest that we need an immune system for the mind. And I was wondering if you could talk about that. Yes. Well, I, again, I want to speak just primarily from my own experience. I'm not a doctor or a therapist, but I can tell you that I've spoken to a lot of people and I include myself in this. People just kind of have a fleet, free floating anxiety, if you will. Um, you know, we have something to worry about. And if that goes away, it'll just kind of float around and find something else to latch onto, whether or not it has to do with our kids or our houses or our jobs or our relationships or what have you. And if you combine that with an actual kind of black swan event, right? A genuine stroke of very rare bad luck. It can trigger you into this whole cascading problem of kind of catastrophic thinking where something extraordinarily rare but extraordinarily bad has actually happened to you. Therefore, you're inclined to think that it's going to continue, right? That your, your number is always going to come up, that you're just kind of the hard luck family or the hard luck individual. And that obviously is a very defeating and negative mindset that can not just affect, you know, the joy you get out of life, but can affect everybody around you. It is immediately possible to create hell on earth in your immediate environment. And that kind of catastrophic thinking and, and extreme pessimism can contribute to that. So when I mentioned an immune system of the mind, you know, in the course of this journey, which is the nice way of saying ordeal, you know, we obviously learned a lot about the human immune system. My son had a very rare, very lethal uh, primary immune deficiency. And so we had to kind of become fluent enough in that realm of science that we could participate intelligently in the conversation with his doctors. But one of the things that I thought was very interesting about the immune system that I learned is that it's not just one thing, right? It's not just one organ that performs one function, like the heart. It basically is an army of hundreds and sometimes thousands, depending on how you want to count and define the terms of different kinds of cells that each perform a different function, that each fight a given pathogen or attacker. And 
as the years kind of drew on and I and my family kind of figured out ways to kind of cope with the situation, it seemed like it was actually a pretty functional metaphor for how we were dealing with things. In other words, when it came time for our minds to try to deal with these kind of constant assaults, we couldn't just have one modality of coping or healing. We had to adopt, you know, a whole kind of Swiss army knife of different types of tools and different vocabularies and everything to be specific. I'm talking about everything from diet to exercise to faith practice to meditation, of course, and also various modes of therapy. Definitely an expanded toolkit, right? You know, I I was of a mind when I first kind of realized that I had to start doing something that I was going to just commit 100% to a given uh, approach. And if I deviated or I supplemented or complemented that with other approaches that I was somehow either failing or cheating or not doing it the right way. And it took me a while to kind of liberate myself from that kind of thinking too, and realize that you're not being unfaithful or you're not failing by adopting kind of a cafeteria style approach to whatever it is you're trying to do. Yeah, absolutely. We actually really try to reiterate frequently that like mindfulness is not a fix-all. It works Mm -hmm. great for certain things. It doesn't work so great for some other things. And so I totally agree with that. I think that we have to have maybe multiple modalities, even in one day, depending on how big the crisis is we're dealing with. So I appreciate that. You cover in the book, the somewhat dichotomous relationship between science and faith. Your wife relied more on faith where you turned more towards science. And I was wondering now, looking back, how do you see that now? Do you see it differently than you did maybe while you were going through it? Yeah, well, I always want to say that I never entered the whole process or never kind of identified as some kind of militant atheist. I always kind of respected religion to a certain degree, but I don't really think I understood the origins of that respect. And when the crisis hit, yes, I practiced mindfulness and yes, it helped, but I also took immense comfort in learning about the science. And then in terms of kind of getting meaning out of it, you know, when you are a rare disease family and your child is getting treated, Oftentimes you'll be participating in some study or other. In our case, it was several different studies. And it also felt very good and ennobling and and fulfilling to know that we're somehow in a very small way contributing to this, even if it's only some little sliver of data. I found the science very encouraging. However, there were times, some very specific moments I can remember, when I realized that the science wasn't going to get you all the way there. Let me just very briefly describe the moment when we were infusing my son's donor cells that would ultimately heal him and form him a new immune system. We were in the room, the cells were going in. And at that moment, we were, you know, standing at the very edge, the very cutting edge of science. We're at the very border of what was known and what was unknown, right at the interface of our best medicine and human biology. And even at that moment, you know, the doctors and the nurses are like, we think this is going to work but we don't know. And sometimes we do everything right and it works out great. Sometimes we do everything right and some kids die. Those moments where, you know, everybody's done their homework, everybody's, you know, practiced the science and you're, you're literally standing at the mountaintop of all of, you know, human research. And still the only thing that's going to get you forward, frankly, is a leap of faith. And then in studying and observing my wife's faith practice, One of the things that I 
was able to learn and observe close up and be really moved by was the degree to which my wife, but also most people of faith, are practicing not because they're superstitious or because they've abandoned all their critical facilities at the church door or whatever, but because they too are finding themselves in positions where they need help. They need to find strength for the journey. They need to find a source of hope and motivation to move on and not collapse in, you know, a, a kind of corner where, where nothing but depression and, and pessimism exists, right? You have to be, especially if you're the parent, you have to have a certain degree of optimism and encouragement and confidence so that your child can also kind of build off that. And so I think a lot of people are doing one of the things they're trying to get out of their faith and to the degree that it works, I think it's a wonderful thing. I think too, and especially in reading about your relationship and about the different approaches, really speaks to the fact that there is no right or wrong involved in it. It's really what speaks to you in that moment. And it doesn't have to be a prescribed religion or a specific, you know, science only and and block out everything. I really believe that most people would probably get to that same conclusion toward the end, especially after going through what all of you had gone through. One of the big messages, and this is a principle of many religions, is that, you know, suffering in the proper context, properly understood and properly directed, can be put to a higher purpose. We're not Stoics. We don't just say, thank you, sir, may I have another, and, you know, heap on more pain and suffering. But we are cognizant of the fact that in the proper context and with the proper mindset, you can redirect your own suffering and the suffering of those around you and use it as a, a means of attaining a higher purpose in your own life, achieving higher levels of compassion and optimism, and overall just becoming a more sensitive human being. I appreciated that you talk about the loving kindness practice. Mm -hmm. And where you also had some challenges with it afterwards, right? With kind of where your mind was going with it. Did you find the mindfulness and meditation tools in your kit to be helpful? And in what ways? Not just helpful, but I mean, life-saving, crucial, must-haves. I am not proud to say this, but, you know, for a good chunk of my adult life, I had anger management issues and I could blame it all on my son's condition. But the fact of the matter is that it it predated uh, my son's diagnosis. I will say that the diagnosis obviously, you know, kicked things into a whole other level, not just with anger, but with fear, with depression and sadness. And so the practice of loving kindness, which is something that I was able to uh, do, not just when I sit, but in the course of going about my day, I found it very helpful to kind of just wish loving kindness on almost every living being I encountered. Now, I didn't do that 24-7, but, you know for a good chunk of, like, say, your commute, I found it very helpful. Just anything that would help me kind of make immediate and present for me the other person's humanity and, implicitly, whatever it is they're going through, their suffering. It's understandable that your ordeal has probably changed some of your perspectives on life, but I really found it interesting when you talk about you're sort of trying to reemerge back into normal living. And it happened to be right when Trump was elected and Mm -hmm. the sort of difference, I guess I would say, between everyone's reactions that you were seeing versus you and your wife's reaction. And the same thing with people, you know, complaining about a vacation that didn't go well or whatever, and that that was very difficult for you. And you talk about it being sort of an emergent pattern of a little bit of a disconnect with other people. But I also saw it as being awake to what's really important and what's not important. And so I was just curious if you think 
just as human beings, do we have to suffer really badly before we finally get it, you know, and see that perspective? That's a really well-phrased question, and I appreciate you asking me that. Yes, I mean, I would say that I would hope people wouldn't have to suffer before they realize that I understand that politics is important, okay? Who's president matters. And certainly, you know, wars happen or don't happen, depending on who. So I'm not trying to belittle the whole thing. But on a daily basis, most of what we encounter are the people and things in our immediate vicinity. Okay, and the president is, for the most part, an image on a screen. And one of the mindfulness uh, practices that helped me is just to be able to detach from uh, from that altogether. Now, the funny thing about election night 2016, just coincidentally, I was working at ABC News at the time. So I was somewhat involved or at least present for the, um, the network's news coverage. And so I was watching it, obviously, and then I was walking around in New York City afterwards, and New York City, pretty liberal place, people were despairing, right? And Hillary Clinton had just, you know, not given her victory speech at the Javits Center, a few blocks from where I was. So it was like 9-11 had just happened all over again. People were shocked and, you know, visibly upset. Literally, earlier that same day, one of our doctors had called me and told me that our son's transplant was actually officially a success that he was officially cured of his disease, that he was going to live and not die. So I was in the best mood ever. But the point of that story is to illustrate the broader point that affects a lot of people um, who you know, go through medical crises, but I think a lot of people in general, which is that you find yourself not feeling how you're supposed to feel at a given time. And you're not really engaged or aligned with the same kind of priorities and responses to given stimuli that a lot of the people in your peer group are. COVID age now, everybody's kind of been in the same boat, right, of being de facto immunocompromised in the face of this new pathogen. But the point is, you know, we lived kind of in that mindset for a long time when nobody else was doing it. So we've, we, we've been kind of experiencing some sense of alienation from most parts of the world for a long time. But again, it's just something you, you get used to and you learn to accept. I did find it interesting too, the sort of the parallels, because, you know, you talk about the isolation and having to be so careful because germaphobe doesn't begin to cover it, like what the pressure must feel like to try to protect your child. But at the same time, that's extremely isolating. And then for you to go through this and then finish the book right before the COVID shutdowns and all of that happened, and you already had the wipes and the masks and everything was already there. And it's like, so it is sharing it on a broader scale, I guess, but of course, not with that intense, I can't even imagine, anxiety over, you know, your child. But it is interesting that it kind of happened around the same time. Everything that's happened in the last five or six years, the same time you were going through all that, a lot of things were happening in the world. And I think that a lot of parents in much better situations, but still very difficult through the pandemic and the shutdown and the isolation and everything has caused a lot of parents to question their ability to be good parents. And you do talk about that, about the inadequacy or the adequacy. So I was wondering if you could talk about that, about how parents, even if they're stressed, they can still do what they need to do, which you're a living example of. So could you talk a little bit about that? My approach to adequacy stems from the fact that I think parents are sometimes called upon to be heroes in ways that they may not be equipped to be. And specifically in our situation, you know, when you read about many stories of, you know, rare disease diagnoses in children, Somehow, parents managed to kind of rise to the saintly level of 
you know, compassion and patience and calm and giving and altruism. And it is true that that happens in a lot of cases, but it's also true that a major event like a rare disease diagnosis can wreak havoc on a family. It can lead to depression and divorce and substance abuse and bankruptcy and, you know, all these very serious things that people don't usually talk about. But the truth is that when you're put under extreme pressure, sometimes you crack. And that was certainly the case in my situation. There were many, many times in which I did not perform as well as I would have liked to looking back on. But the moral of the story is that if you acknowledge that, and if you acknowledge your own shortcomings and imperfections and weaknesses, which is not the easiest word for some men to use, you can then kind of do the next step, which is avail yourself of, you know, as many modalities of help as you need and get to the level of adequacy where, like I said, you're executing your responsibilities, you're participating in the decisions, you're relating to the people around you in a constructive way, and most importantly, not making things worse. So true. We're typically our worst enemies, right? So I guess I'd want to close with just asking, how is your son Sebastian now? Is he doing okay? He's doing great. He's about to start fourth grade. In many, many regards, it's just like it, it never happened. He oh. needs to get checked annually for any kind of long-term lingering organ damage that the chemo might have inflicted on him. But so far, it's so good. And really, we're so blessed uh, every day. We're, we're so grateful for that. It doesn't work out that way for every kid. Medicine is advancing. The ways to both manage and cure the disease are, are growing every year. There's all sorts of cause for hope. But nevertheless, you know, some kids don't make it. And some kids make it, but they make it through with complications that make their, their ongoing lives considerably more challenging. So the book is, in fact, dedicated to uh, everybody who's had it tougher because there's plenty of people out there who have. It's a fascinating story, and I'm glad it had a happier ending. And I think it's probably very helpful for people going through that process. But I also think it's a interesting just sort of glimpse into someone that is self-aware. Because maybe you didn't think you were at the beginning, but clearly you were self-aware as you were going through it. So I think that speaks a lot to everything we talked about. None of us are perfect. Stuff happens. We can't control it. But what we can do is look inward and try to figure out where we're getting off track or what's going wrong or how can we tend to our mind or how do we take care of ourselves so that we can better take care of other people. And I thought it was a fascinating story. And I really appreciate you joining us today to talk about it. Thank you. Again, fascinating journey to follow. We're not even aware of how many people are going through things like this because we don't hear about it. So thank you again for even taking the time to read the book. And thank you again for having me on and uh, sharing your audience's time with me. It's, it's really kind of you and generous. Thank you. And I hope your whole family stays well. Thanks again to Miguel Sancho for sharing his daunting experience. You can find a link to his book, more Than You Can Handle, A Rare Disease, A Family Crisis, and the Cutting-Edge Medicine That Cured the Incurable on our website. I think most of us wait to change until we experience a major crisis, hit rock bottom, or have no other choice. That means we're needlessly suffering and much of it by our own doing. We get distracted with so many unimportant things in life, trivial disagreements, minor disappointments, and things that are just plain out of our control. But we don't have to wait until the suffering is immense before we shift our perspective and build our resilience through mindfulness. 
We can start anytime, even right now. Until next time, we can live better lives and create a better world. All it takes to get started is a mindful moment. Meditation is the most effective technique to strengthen mindfulness. The key to experiencing the full benefits of this practice is to meditate every day, even if you start with just a few minutes and work your way up to 20 to 30 minutes per session over time. Consistency counts, and the benefits are cumulative. So be kind to yourself and meditate daily. Each time your mind wanders away from the breath, simply return your focus to the breath. It is in this noticing that you're building your mindfulness skills. Your mind may wander a hundred times in just a couple of minutes, and that's normal. Each time you notice, that's mindfulness. Work to Live's Dynamic Coaching Certification Program is a self-paced online course series that strengthens emotional intelligence and mindfulness skills, along with relationship building, communication skills, time management, self-motivation, and more. Visit our website for an informational video on the program. You can also find resources for self and leadership development, as well as the latest books by authors we interview on this show. Go to worktoliveproductions.com slash book club to start shifting your quality of life today. And be sure to visit our YouTube channel at Work to Live, where you'll find videos of our interviews, animated shorts on daily living and working, guided meditations, and more. Please subscribe to A Mindful Moment with Teresa McKee wherever you get your favorite podcasts and rate this podcast so that others can find us. Follow us on social media at Work to Live. A Mindful Moment is written by Teresa McKee. The English version is hosted by Teresa McKee and the Spanish version is translated and hosted by Paola Tile. Intro music, Retreat by Jason Farnham. Outro music, Morning Stroll by Josh Kirsch, Media Right Productions. Thank you for tuning in. This podcast is produced by Work to Live Productions.